Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, tonight, we need to move uh, a little quicker than we did last night. <laughs> last night's very spooky edition. The Halloween edition of Off Air was very long. Very frightening, but very, very long. Do you know what? It saw me into my, uh, the the restaurant that I booked for dinner mm. absolutely perfectly, though. Oh, did it? Okay. Yeah. I, it, well, I, then, that's all that matters. <laughs> that is all that matters, Jane. Did you have a starter? Uh, no, no. We kind of shared one of the, you know, sometimes when the menu's really complicated, mm. And it was an Italian restaurant, obviously not complicated if you are Italian, but complicated for me. The primi antipasti, oh, yeah. secondi, secondo, or whatever it is. I just don't, I don't really know what size anything's going to come in. So it's best to say, we'll just share one of those. Mm. And then you know, it comes, it's just like one tiny mouth. They think, what's wrong with these weirdos? <laughs> anyway, <sighs> it was it was nice, but I can't do that again, Joe. I can't go out on a Tuesday night. It's absolute madness, exhausted today. Absolutely dreadful. Well, you've done terribly But well. you've got a, a, a charitable function to go to this evening. Darling, the work that you put into society is marvellous. I commend you for it. And we must uh, be hot to trot Yes. so that you can get to... Uh, is it a posh club, isn't is it? it? Yes, we're not talking any more about it. What I do in posh clubs <laughs> on Wednesday nights is up to me. Don't hide your light under a bushel. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very well-established routine uh, that's been earning me quite a little bit of additional cash over the years. <laughs> uh, I'm available for Christmas bookings, if you've got no. Um, I, I love this, or rather I hate it. It's uh, the John Lewis announcement. It's a prediction for the festive season from John Lewis. Two trees in homes, this chicmas. John Lewis predicts. I can't stand that kind of thing. Well, it's quite... Let's let's plant a seed in people's minds that they need both a turkey and a goose. Yeah, it's well, that kind of thing. It is. It? It's, this, it's like the press release every year from the National Butter Council, headlined, Butter is good for you. <laughs> so so we, need, we, we need two trees yes. or we're all going to have two trees? Um, the uh, massively... Well, actually, is it successful? What, John, John Lewis? Lewis? No, it's so a very hard up and time. down, isn't it? Yeah. John Lewis is predicting that this Christmas could see the rise of what it calls two-tree households. The retailer says that despite the cost of living crisis, more homes than normal will be buying and erecting two Christmas trees. And then there's been a 96% increase in the sale of outdoor decorations. What? Well, that's because only one person was buying them last year. Yeah, and now somebody else is joining in. That's incredible. 96% increase in the sale of outdoor decorations. So they're, they're the people that have the flashing Santas illuminated from, well, basically today, 1st of November. It's all very old, isn't it? 
No. I don't. One think, tree's enough. I don't think it is actually, Jane. I think um, I think what John Lewis means is the the Christmas wreath, and that's quite a new thing. Uh, and maybe some Christmas lanterns outside and stuff like that. I don't think John Lewis is selling the massive Santa rides off into you the. Don't, you don't think so? Into the sunset? No. no, I don't think it is. Okay, right. Well, I'm glad to hear it because they are quite a sophisticated store, aren't they? Much appreciated by me over the years. Will you have said. two trees? No. Okay. <laughs> Every single year I say, can't we just get an artificial one this year? And the answer is always no. And so, you know, give in, get the real thing, love it to bits for about three or four days. I really do. Uh, and then it starts to look a bit tatty, the needles start to drop, the smell goes. It's all a bit crap, isn't it? Oh, oh, I love humbug. Yeah, everybody. absolutely. Um, Very happy Christmas to you. Yes, well, indeed. Um, now, what was I going to say? Oh, yes, uh, twins is our subject today because uh, our big guest is the author William Viney, who is himself an identical twin, and he's written a book called Twin Kind. And uh, this email came in, actually, from Elizabeth, who says, I had two delightful girls. I then found myself pregnant again. Um, and I knew that there were two babies this time. I also knew they were identical. Therefore, the end result could have been four girls. I was overjoyed to give birth very easily and quickly to two gorgeous boys. My dreams had come true. Bearing in mind this was before the days of gender reveal or the trend to find out the baby's sex in advance of the birth. However, this meant, listen to this, I had four children under three and a half. There were just 17 months between my second child and the boys. In other words... Three of them were in nappies. It was the best time of my life and I loved every moment until I needed to return to work. A couple of interesting facts. I never, ever refer to my boys as twins. They've always had their own identity. At Playgroup, the boys attended on separate days, but on the annual coach trip, both rocked up to the amazement of bemused three-year-olds who had played with them individually, saying, why are there two of them? Oh, that's really, that's adorable. That is oh, so much you. toddler action, though, isn't it, in a household? Yeah. Just medals galore sent over to you. Yeah. Uh, this one comes from Kat, who's living near Twyford in Hampshire. Lovely, lovely, lovely part of the world, obviously, Kat. And she wanted to talk about dogs because she really enjoyed the interview with Claire Balding. And actually, there are still quite a few emails coming in about that. Um, I completely felt the part about losing Archie. And Archie was Claire and Alice's much, much loved dog. Uh, pet grief for me was so raw and deep. We had to make that decision too for our very unwell, much-loved family King Charles Spaniel Hattie two years ago, and it was beyond heartbreaking. I still feel it today. Claire and Alice were also talking about getting a dog one day again, and toy schnauzers, possibly. And this is Mabel, our just one-year-old schnoodle. Uh, that's a toy poodle and a miniature schnauzer mix. She's intelligent, crazy, and a complete pain in my ass. but everybody <laughs> absolutely loves her. She's got, and she has got a lovely yeah, face. Do you know what, Kat? If you hadn't said that she is a complete pain in the arse i would have been able to tell that from the picture she just looks like trouble in miniature form but i do love all this portmanteauism of the dogs that have bred together it's so funny isn't it just trying to work out from the name some of them are obvious like the you know the schnoodle and the labradoodle mm. but sometimes in the part when someone says oh yes that's a mix between a husky and a jack russell and they've called it a hustle or something like that and you're just like, i don't i don't think that's really a, a word is it 
are these pairings? Are they um, <laughs> legit? Well, no. Um, no, well, they're not, are they? I mean, but, so how are they? They're put together in the hope that they will mate. Uh, I so, don't really understand that. Yeah, I mean, it. I think sometimes if if you are trying to breed a certain type of dog, like a schnoodle or a labradoodle, then you're going to do that. But your random park love, mm. uh, which sometimes takes place between ridiculously inappropriate dogs, <laughs> so you will see just a tiny, tiny little dashons just having, having a, a go, an absolute love affair with an you know enormous. I was going to say German Shepherd, but let's really not no, try that, and imagine that. That wouldn't happen. But it's just so weird. I mean, how does that happen? But it does happen. So. Claire, Claire did say at one point that um, some dogs are more intelligent, some types of dog are more intelligent than others, and poodles are really intelligent. And uh, literally at that point, I suddenly had an image of a poodle wearing glasses and reading a newspaper. And, of course, it, you, you never see that. <laughs> so how do we know that poodles are really intelligent? Because you can train them and they respond to more than your average dog. Not, I, you know, Nancy just responds to food, her own name, and that's about it, actually. I mean, she's beautiful, absolutely beautiful, but greyhounds aren't known for that. Immense intelligence. Uh, no, but do your cats know their name? Names? No, I don't think so. Oh, really? Okay. No. Mm. That's a good question. I'll try that out tonight. Fun times, kids. <laughs> I tell you what. <laughs> Another gala evening. Shay Glover. <laughs> Pam is now in Lichfield, but formerly came from Fazakali, which is a part of Liverpool. Bless uh, you. Fazakali, no, it does sound like that. Fazakali Hospital is uh, now renamed Aintree Hospital. Uh, but it was initially, and actually it's it's a place where you sort of long for something to happen because then newsreaders will get it wrong and call it Fazakurli, as I heard a number of times uh, over the years. <laughs> but it's Fazakli, as all Scousers know. Anyway, Pam said, my mum also went to the group your mum went to, Young Wives. Uh, I remember the Old Wives too. My grandmother, that was. She went to the Women's Bright Hour. That sounds good, doesn't it? Well, it does, but does that imply that there's a woman's not-so-bright hour? <laughs> Where are the other women going? the one I'd have gone to. This seems so much more fascinating and forward-thinking. The men, young and old, went to something called the men's class. <laughs> that sounds really boring. Obviously not as frivolous, no, and far more educational. Thank you for keeping me sane-ish, says Pam, who's settling into life in Litchfield, but obviously it'll never be the same. Well, we're doing our best. As the Mersey Riviera. Uh, we had quite a few about workplace childcare, and thank you very much indeed for, uh, for all of those. This one came in from Yvette, who's listening to us in Melbourne. Uh, returning to the paid workforce is one of the biggest barriers to meeting breastfeeding goals. The relatively simple solution of workplace childcare would facilitate breastfeeding without the added burden of pumping. Mother could go to their infant to breastfeed in the same amount of time they would sit in a room attached to a breast pump. The UK has one of the lowest rates of breastfeeding in the world. I didn't know that. And this relatively simple change could be part of the solution. And I really agree with you there, Yvette. Actually, I think uh, for for me, the memory of having to you know use a lunch hour or a break at work to go and sit in a cubicle and pump milk just made me feel... It, it made me feel so unhappy, actually, Jane, because it was just a reminder of how far away I was from my baby. Yes, it's not. It's, it's not a pleasant environment to be in. You can hear lots of people coming in and having a wee next to you. Oh, God. It's just not. No, but it's not. Or it's worse, just not nice. Some, well, sometimes. Oh, yes. yeah. You know who I worked with. Um, <laughs> 
but but all of those things should be thought through and there is just a massive disconnect between uh, the time that you're encouraged to breastfeed for and the time of most people's maternity leave mm. it doesn't work no. so you, you are left pumping wet so a workplace crash would be a good idea for that but quite a few people have said it just wouldn't work no, for me no I was interested in, in those emails um, I couldn't quite understand their logic what is the logic of people who say it just won't work uh, so uh, so this one comes in from Jen uh, who says that she has been lucky enough to use the workplace nursery for both children but the I think the one problem for her uh, is that um, when the lockdowns came and when she wasn't allowed to work in the office she still had to travel to the nursery to take the kids there and so for quite a lot of people who've gone back to work in a hybrid way mm. if it's a workplace childcare facility you're not in the right place at all at the right time but I would argue that that's what's mm. happening all of the time yeah. when your nursery is miles away from work a bit closer to home mm. so it's a bit six of one half a dozen of the other um and there was one which i can't find here but if i do i will certainly attribute it to the right person but somebody just saying actually it's nice to go to work drop the kids off and go to work and yeah, not have the knowledge that your kids uh, downstairs might need you at any time and therefore you might be called at any time and yeah. perhaps if they if you weren't so conveniently situated you may not be called yeah yeah, it's a difficult one. I mean, it's all about women being involved in the decision-making, which um, is a rather sort of, well, tenuous link to the evidence given at the COVID inquiry today here in the UK by this senior female civil servant who was just consistently making the point that she thinks that women suffered during the pandemic because there weren't enough decisions made by women with the interests of women in mind. Yeah, there simply weren't enough women in the room. It's just, it is, it's really terrible. And anyone who thinks, oh, going on about quotas, what does it matter whether there are women there? Well, here's your example. It does matter. Yeah, but I would argue, as I think I said yesterday, that I think the workplace thing is just so important for parenting. So it stops always being about mums having to work out childcare. Mm. Uh, you know, it just stands to reason that more men would be able to participate in, in early years childcare if they were encouraged through their place of work to bring their kids to a workplace crash. It's got to make a positive difference there. Well, you it? would you would think so. Yes. Yeah. Um, some interesting e emails too. Um, after our correspondent who'd had uh, an eating disorder was worried about the messages she was perhaps inadvertently sending or might send to her own offspring. And this is from a listener who says, I too had issues in my early 20s and I used food, I think, to quash my feelings of depression and anxiety. I was also bulimic for a while. I think I was quite scared of food and especially when going back to my parents' house, even as an adult with children of my own, I always overate on all the cakes and biscuits my mum would have in the pantry. I've always been into healthy eating and I tried to bring my kids up, this was the 80s, on a whole food diet without colours and additives or too much sugar. I was con concerned that my children, especially my daughter, would also have a problematic relationship with food. And I'd like your correspondent to know the good news. Uh, she hasn't. They don't have a bad relationship with food. My daughter is unconcerned if she puts weight on, has recently had a gorgeous baby. Uh, she's still teaching me, as they do, about healthy attitude to body size and reminded me when I was visiting a couple of weeks ago that she was happy for me to compliment her, but please don't mention her size. Um, it brought me up sharp, as I think I'm still concerned about keeping slim. I'm 65 now and my scales are often in use. 
I just hadn't realised that I was commenting on her size rather than her beauty. My son is also a healthy weight, but I'm not so aware of his attitude to food as he's a boy. Mm. There's quite a lot. There's quite a lot in there, isn't there? Um, and I, I, I just think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. A, can I say? I think it might be a generational thing. I mean, I'm I'm very close to your age. Um, to this correspondent, I would say that. Yeah, I'm fifty nine. She's sixty five. So, is it? Are, are we? What is it about us that's programmed for us to be programmed to care about our daughter's weight? I don't know. I, I really don't know. But there's there's definitely something. There's something in that. I think our emailer has been very honest, actually, and I appreciate her honesty. But it is quite telling that she acknowledges herself that she just isn't as concerned about with her about her son. Um, and I would say, uh, please do be. I think that there are there's so much um, body stress going down for teenage boys and young adult men at the moment, which I don't think gets discussed in quite the same empathetic way as we have learnt to discuss girls' attitude to. Yeah, food, think, weight, and body image. Mm, I think in our case, her son's going to be in his thirties or forties if her daughter, her daughter's just had a baby. So um, he's well out of his adolescence. It's just that she doesn't feel she's programmed to see him in terms of his weight. Yeah, whereas she, yeah. she does see her. I mean, and I, I, I think to be honest, I think she's onto something. I don't think that's unusual. I, I really don't. Um, this emailer says, "I don't talk about good or bad food with my child. I talk about energy." I call my child the pocket rocket uh, and tell them they need energy to keep the rocket going. Some food gives even more energy and rocket fuel, so it's great to try it all. I try not to pressure on, not to put pressure on them to eat meals, but if there's a refusal to eat, then I'll keep the meal. When they complain they're hungry, it's there ready for them. My child could eat ice cream all year round, and if that's an incentive to get them to flipping well keep walking or get off the playground, it's chuffing freezing, then that's okay. I don't want to perpetuate my anxiety about certain food groups onto them. Your listener said her husband's preoccupation with food came from a place of trauma, and I reckon most people with an eating disorder develop it as a coping mechanism. Perhaps if your listener is open with their children, allowing them food experiences and explaining their feelings in simple terms, it will help. After all, kids are canny. Mine can spot a sneaky piece of broccoli in a meal faster than he can load Ben and Holly onto the iPad. This is what I felt old at that point because I don't know who Ben and Holly are. No, it might be something really terrible, Jane. No, I don't think it is. I think it's a popular programme with the very young. Okay. Uh, can we talk about bras? Imogen uh, says, uh, long-time listener, after my dad recommended your podcast a few years ago, what a guy. After listening to you talk about bra fittings on your Claire Balding episode, I thought I'd email about when my mum used to be a bra fitter at Selfridges in the 80s. She says she would frequently get men coming in with pictures of their wives whilst buying Christmas presents, asking my mum to guess from the photo what size they would I mean, need. That is not great, is it? <laughs> Come on, fellas, do better. <laughs> she once had a man present her a photo of his wife in a full burqa and asked for this service and oh, she didn't God. know what to say. She also once spoke to Paul McCartney's people and sorted some gifts for Stella. I don't know if this is of any interest. It is Imogen. Uh, but is. I found it all interesting when she told me. So Imogen, could you go back to your mum? I really hope your mum's still around. Uh, could you go back and ask her uh, the initial question, why you've got a, you've got a double A bra cup size a double d you say there's a double g mm, but definitely. i don't think there's a double b i don't think there's a double c oh i think 
Have I seen a double B? I, I was think there was a double B. Before I started going to the shop to get measured properly, uh, the bra size I thought I was was always the bra size they didn't have. Have you had that experience where they've got every other size except the one you think you need? And as we know, 99.99% of women are wearing the wrong size bra. That's on a press release from the National Bra Council. Yes, so you keep telling us, darling. Uh, hello, Jane of I took my daughter for her first bra fitting at M&S recently. The woman who was doing the fitting was absolutely brilliant. And everything you would imagine a bra fitter to be in a Richard Curtis-type film. <laughs> my daughter took her T-shirt off but kept her crop top on. The fitter measured around her chest for the numbers but said she could generally get the cup size right just from looking, so didn't measure over the breasts, which I suspect my daughter was really pleased about. Uh, my daughter had been really hesitant to go, but came out feeling pleased to be in her first proper bra, with tips on how to put a bra on by lifting each boob and letting it fall into the cup. I had no idea. Did you know that? Well, that is something they do for you at the special shop. <laughs> OK. Uh, we were advised to have her remeasured every six months, so perhaps this is the start of a new generation having regular bra fittings and not feeling the need to start with an apology. Uh, incidentally, the fitter herself was very quick to apologise for cold hands. Right. I think we're... Oh, thank you very much for that. Um, a couple of... Can I just say a couple of lovely life-enhancing bra fitting emails yeah. there? Now, absolutely lovely. Um, just a quick word on... Um, Halloween. This is the last word, I think, for to Mary. Mary, thank you very much for the lovely pictures of your grandsons out and about, trick-or-treating, dressed up as a pair of extremely scary skeletons. Uh, they look genuinely quite terrifying. Look at those two. Scream. Oh, my word! <coughs> exactly. Uh, they, they went out and about and poked some sticks around and generally had a lovely time. And apparently, Mary set the scene by playing some scary music. Scary music, of course... This podcast doesn't have the budget for. But anyway, at least Mary had some at home. OK, shall we do this email asking for our advice, Jane, or would you rather not? No, I think we should do it. I just don't think we can give advice. But anyway, let's hear the email. Uh, so this is from Please Do Not Read Out My Name. Uh, I listen to your show and podcast every day and I value your advice and wisdom on all things, so I thought I'd take the plunge. I'm a 48-year-old woman with two children, 12 and 17, and I'm seriously considering divorcing my husband, but I'm really not sure what to do. He had an affair about five years ago and I'm past that, although I do still not trust him. But then again, I doubt I will ever trust anyone again after having my heart and trust broken. When I confronted him back then, he lied to my face for the year it went on until he crumpled. It's not just the affair, but he is rather difficult to live with, argumentative and bombastic, and I just don't think I love him anymore. We're living in the same house, but more like flatmates. There's no love, tenderness and even kindness and respect is lacking and indifference the worst of all. I question myself when writing this to why I'm staying in this marriage. I haven't talked to him about this. Previously, I talked about everything, but now I just can't be asked. My question to you both, as I know you are both divorced, is how do you know when it's time to get out of a marriage? I appreciate you can't get personal. I've never told any of my friends about the affair, but my parents know. And their advice back then was, if you love him, then try and make it work. But now I'm not sure I do. Uh, this correspondent goes on to say, I'm from divorced parents twice over and I'm a stable adult and it's never really affected me, only now as they're getting older and it would be much more convenient if they were in the same house. I'm scared to make <laughs> I the totally split. get that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it is tricky, that one. Uh, I'm scared to make the split, scared it will destroy the kids, but I don't want them to grow up thinking that this is a loving marriage because it isn't and I want more. So, uh, 
I would be with you, Jane. I wouldn't feel qualified to make any kind of recommendation. And I think as with everything in life, you can only take the advice of someone whose shoes you genuinely want to walk 10,000 miles in, and that should be someone you really know very well. But uh, as I listened to you reading it out, and obviously we'd both already read it, I think she's made her mind up, hasn't she? She knows what she really wants to do. And how old is she? 48. Yes. You, you could have another 50 years. You don't want to spend... I don't think you want to spend 50 years with that man. Um, and I, I think, think you the, know that you don't. The last paragraph, I would say, is just so telling that you know what divorce does because your parents divorced twice over. Mm. So you know how difficult it can be, but you also obviously have come through that incredibly well yourself. And you're quite an informed person to make that decision, I would say. Mm. But I wouldn't give you any you know, personal, oh God, you know, you must absolutely run for the hills. I think, I think our listeners might be able to do that better, Jane. Yes, I think so. But when she mentions the indifference being the worst thing, I think she's right. Oh, indifference is terrible. Isn't it's, it? it's callous. It's really deathly. Yeah. Uh, and once you've got to that stage, and your children, by the way, yeah, I'm sure that they may well be upset if you make the decision to end the marriage. But as they, they are, they are relatively old themselves. They're not babies. Um, they may well actually understand, or they may come to understand in the years ahead. So um, I think there's a real danger here of overthinking if you are that person. And uh, as I say, I, tr I actually I do believe she's already decided what she wants to do, what she knows is the right thing to do for her and for the children and for the husband, because another 40 years... I mean, you know, as you age, <laughs> I'm here to tell you uh, that people who are still married are often obliged to spend much more time with each other than they've ever done before and sometimes that comes with its own tensions i think there the, is going to be a time when our attitude to divorce and marital breakdown just really 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 flips nearly one in two marriages end in separation now it's astonishingly high it's yeah. a you know it's a club that people join and, you know, you think that you're going to enjoy every single visit to the club and you think it's going to be magical and all of that. And for, you know, one out of two club members, it is. But for the other one, they leave the club. And so, you know, there's another club out there that you that you then join. And not everybody's happy in that one, but some people really yeah, are. are. Yeah. But uh, the idea that divorce is a failure, I'm I'm not so sure, actually. that I suppose that would be what I'd say. I think sometimes it's actually uh, quite a successful thing to can, do. It can actually be a monumental positive, which isn't to say it's easy, because I don't, I don't think either of us would say that. Nope. Uh, but good luck to you, and I'm sure that there will be more advice coming your way, Jane and Fee at Times.Radio. Our guest is uh, William Viney, author of a book called Twin Kind, The Singular Significance of Twins. Now, it's a lovely book, this. It's very unusual. It's full of photographs, but there's lots of fascinating detail, too, about all sorts of aspects of being a twin and of other details of the way twins have been treated um, all over the world and throughout history. Some were revered, worshipped. Others, other societies actually abandoned twins and found them terrifying. And of course, we also know that some terrible things were done to twins in all relatively recent history. And then there are twins who were put into freak shows and also. So there's a lot to tackle here in the company of William Viney, who is himself an identical twin. And he is the elder of two twin boys. Here is William explaining that he is very much the older brother, though not by very much. 12 minutes. 
12 minutes, but they're 12 very important minutes. So you are the big brother. I guess I am. I mean, you know, like those 12 minutes meant more or less uh, over time and as we grew older. And I think they mean almost nothing now. Um, and I guess, you know, how do we get on? Well, we are, we're quite close, but that hasn't always been the case. And one of the things I've had time to reflect on is how our relationship has changed. It's changed as we have grown older, as we've moved out of our family home, as we have taken up different professions, got married, had children, life changes, our relationship changes. Have either of you had a set of twins? <laughs> Not yet. Oh, OK. So that, that may... I mean, do you know why you are twins? Was it in your family, your mother's family? What? Well, look, that's a really good question and and one that I kind of wanted to kind of answer for myself my George and I are identical or sometimes called monozygotic twins now the reason why humans have monozygotic twins so that's when uh, a fertilized egg breaks into two and ordinarily make kind of genetic identicals of, of two people is a kind of phenomena in, in biology that is still not really very well understood. There's only one other species that does twinning like humans, and that's the nine-banded armadillo. It's very rare in, 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 the, in the world and in, in, in other ecologies. And so um, I don't think I could kind of answer why does that happen. <laughs> I haven't given myself an answer. Twins also are born when uh, two uh, eggs are fertilised and they are commonly called uh, non-identical or um, dizygotic twins. Right. I mean, there have been any number of really quite dotty and frankly insulting theories about twins over the years. What was it that Aristotle thought about twins? He thought there was, I think, it's a terrible expression, too much seed. Yes. So ancient Greek philosophers like Aristotle... Um, had a, a theory of, of seed for human reproduction. Men and women produce seed. If they produce too much seed, then uh, twins might occur. But also what he thought, thought of as other kinds of monstrosity. So they could be uh, people born with extra an extra limb or, 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 or no limb where there should be one. So um, for, for Aristotle, twins were a kind of, monstrosity um, and that was very important in the history of biology and the philosophy of biology and to the reception of twins because it kind of suggested that uh, that twins were not just unusual but not very appealing or in fact dangerous. Well some cultures were happy to worship twins. They thought twins were really properly fascinating, more than fascinating. But in other societies, uh, twins would quite routinely be abandoned. I mean, there are some dreadful examples of cruelty in your book. Look, I, I, th I think that uh, whenever a human group or a, an example of, uh, of a group is made, an example of scapegoated or... Um, is ostracized or made unusual, um, then they become vulnerable. And twins have been uh, subject to all kinds of violence for different reasons. 
um, in Europe, in the Americas, in Africa, all over the world. And um, I, I suppose one of the more fascinating things for me to learn more about was why does that happen? Um, what stops it happening? Um, and how does it continue to happen, maybe in less violent ways, but no less um, harmful ways? Can we talk about the, the number of twins born? Because because of IVF, there are now more twins born. So, But I guess that would only apply in, in the developed world. I mean, tell me, what is the current situation? That That's correct. So, you know, about 1.6 million twin pairs are born every year in uh, worldwide. And, and there have never been more twins born each year. And... In Northern Europe, in North America, since an, around the 19, uh, early 1940s, 1980s, excuse me, um, about uh, over the last 40 years or so, it's been possible to induce twins in a way that was never possible before. So IVF uh, is one, one method, um, hormone treatments is another. Uh, and this has increased in, increased uh, twin births. And does that make them less of a curiosity? I I think it's important to note that for the most part, twins um, who are born via IVF and other um, reproductive technologies tend to be dizygotic or non-identical twins. And so IVF comes at a point uh, where culturally there's also this I suppose, preference or desire for more identical kinds of twins. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's a kind of complicated picture. We have more twins than we've ever, um, we've ever had on the earth before. Mm. But, and yet our stereotypes of what makes a real kind of twin persists with this highly visual, visually identical form of twinning. Sure. And I, what I thought was really interesting was you, you talk about people who, there, there's quite a high percentage of, of people who are born uh, and their twin has died in the womb or it is discovered afterwards that there was a, another embryo to start with or indeed a woman miscarries and has miscarried one of the embryos but the other goes on and is born and is absolutely fine. Do you think that does have an impact on people? I think, I think that applied to Elvis, didn't it? He, he was one of, one of two. It, yeah, Elvis's mother believed that, that El, one of the reasons why Elvis was such a spectacular star was because he, in some way, received all the energy of his uh, of his brother Jesse. Um, there are many different calculations of what gets called vanishing twin syndrome. Um, that se- that sensation or that feeling, both maybe psychological, but maybe also physical, because you may. Uh, carry the the marks on your body of where you once were a twin that's possible um there are many different calculations of how prevalent that is and and the different understandings of how it affects people um i know i, I know of people who were born twins but led most of their life a singleton and and starting life as a twin means an enormous amount to them but I also know very identical twins who conform to every social stereotype, at least in you know, Northern Europe, 
who can't stand each other. Really? Okay. And do everything they can to stay away from one another. And so it's highly various. Can yeah. I ask you, William, just about your own path uh, with your brother of development? Um, because just within a family, uh, you know, there will be different times that uh, kids hit different markers. And if you've got an older or a younger sibling, you might be constantly compared to, you know, when it was that your 13 year old first grew a chest hair or whatever it is. But as <laughs> twins, uh, you know, you are presumably physically developing at the same time at the same rate but what about em- what about emotionally was there a difference between you and your brother in that regard I don't know to what extent that's explained by a kind of development I mean for sure there are differences in our characters that seem to have always been there and manifest differently as we grew older so I think I've I've had an appetite for risk in a way that George hasn't and now um I look back on that and I think of my career as a as a series of kind of wild kind of leaps into the dark. And George has always seemed to follow a very close path towards progress. Um, have we we found it's certainly the it's certainly the case that when we were younger, it was difficult. But then I think also it was difficult being a twin because we lived in a very small rural community where on the one hand, everybody knew who we were. And then on the other hand, no one could quite tell us apart. So even our anonymity wasn't quite, you know, (laughs) perfect. Um, But did you um, learn to read at the same time and learn to ride a bike at the same time? And that kind of, did you have that kind of symmetry? We did. And we also, I guess our developmental uh, kind of progress, if you like, was also informed by being twins. You know, we we developed language later, I think, than some of our peers, because like a lot of twins, that's common. We didn't need language quite so much (laughs) than some singletons need language. We had each other for company. We communicated to one another in a language that we understood and no one else did. Um, Likewise, we were quite competitive and quite athletic, and we were always trying to slum or outdo each other. Now, that created a kind of internal dynamic which was one of its own one that was really you know owed a lot to being twins for anyone who is uh, currently pregnant with twins they could have found out today that they're having twins what what is your um biggest bit of advice william and would you ever refer to them as the twins or is that a complete no-no i mean one of the reasons why i wrote this book because it was because i found that there were loads of books telling people how to value their twins and how to think about twins. Usually in quite kind of didactic ways, you know, psychologists, for example, have very strong views about how you should, you know, guide and develop your twins in particular ways. Um, I'm less interested in that. I'm less interested in telling people what the best is for them and their twins. And I'm much more interested in asking people to be curious and to have conversations with with people that are open-ended about twins rather than kind of rely on, uh, like, you know, you had your, your call, uh, uh, Mike, earlier asking, you know, should you separate or should you yeah. have your twins together at school? And I'm like, well, why not both? Why don't, why don't you just chop and change according to how things progress? Why do you have to make a decision based, you know, in one point of time and just, you know, that's it? 
it, it, it's that sort of thing that I'm interested in. Um, I don't think I have any great payload advice for expectant twin parents. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, this is a nice text. My niece, when she was very little, saw herself in a mirror outside her bedroom, mistook the mirror image for a twin and began a conversation with a non-existent sister that was unfortunately overheard by her brother. She is still hearing about it decades later. And this from Charlotte. I'm a twin with a non-identical sister, although we do look alike. We are both now 40. We've always been close. We went to the same school, the same university and lived together at university and during our young professional life in London. We've travelled together and it was only when I got married uh, that we've ever been apart at most we are only ever apart for a fortnight despite many twins and people's preconceptions we are chalk and chalk not chalk and cheese we now have our own children no twins but continue to be really really close when we're together people still will do a double take we haven't had any spooky twin moments but we do often send the same birthday cards. Um, William, that's what civilians want to know. They want to know about those so-called spooky twin moments. So have you and George ever known that the other was in pain, for example? Um, I, I, this is where, you know, as a twin, I disappoint people. You know, I, I think on the whole, George and I look at, alike, sufficient for them to, for people to be kind of satisfied that it's genuine, you yeah. know. And then often the next question is, you know, tell me about your experiences of telepathy or, you know, to the extent to which you feeling that each other's pain. And at this point that, you know, it feels like I'm bursting the balloon and, and I can't tell them anything. It just doesn't happen for me. Okay. And 
Um, well, don't I'm worry. Don't make it up. Well no, if it doesn't happen, that's okay. No, but what's interesting, I think, for me is that there is these, a series of expectations yes. that, that twins should maybe conform to. And, and, and I never get away from those, um, even if I don't quite kind of you know, meet them. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- there is a paediatrician quoted in your book, um, Winnicott, who said that twins uh, were uh, really up against it from the start, may well face a life of psychological turmoil because they were essentially bound to be competing for their mother's attention. Do you buy that? No, not really. You know, it, it just seems to me to assume that, you know, the ideal kind of family involves two parents and a child and the ideal child has two parents usually a mother who is the primary caregiver I just I think it's deeply unhelpful and old-fashioned but it still really informs how uh, parents of twins are um, are guided uh, you know to and how they should view their their twin children as 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 potential sites of trouble you know because their twin relationship can kind of create all kinds of problems for mm. them. Either they too much identify with the other or there's a rivalry that is very toxic. Or, but, but, but there's an enormous amount of fear invested in twins by parents. And I, don't, I sometimes worry that the psychological professionals are, are kind of stoking it by saying, actually, what you really want is, is, is you know, healthy individuals. That's the, the ideal. And your twins can be guided out of that. For example, if they're not in the same class as at school and mm. you don't dress them alike and you don't call them twinnies, yeah. for example. Can we talk about some of the other twins that, that you have uh, included in the book and particularly the, the chapter on born entertainers because our fascination with twins has meant a life on the stage for quite a lot of twins over the years, hasn't it? I would imagine not always uh, for their own entertainment and joy. No, and and one of the things that I learned more about as I was doing my research is, is how fast some of those celebrity lives can be. Um, I was particularly drawn to... Uh, stars of the Bourneville stage in the 1920s, uh, the Dolly Twins or the Rocky Twins, uh, they had a, careers that lasted maybe five, six or seven years. And then they were replaced by other twins who kind of did high kicks and kind of dance reviews and, and sort of various comic skits. And then they were kind of discarded. Um, you see exactly the same thing happening on social media. There are so-called TikTok twinfluencers who kind of burn bright and have millions of followers and then they disappear and they're kind of replaced by other sets of twins. And, and some part of me feels deeply uncomfortable by that. Mm. I, I must admit, if I'm honest, the, the twins that I that come easiest to my mind when I was thinking about this are the Cray twins who do feature in your book. In fact, you have a section on basically it's called Folle a deux. Is that right? The, the suggestion that malevolent twins working in tandem can do well, and certainly in the case of the Crays, an enormous amount of damage. The Cray twins were in prison for a very long time. And yet the media 
were able to help them secure their legacy as celebrity gangsters. And they still have this excitement attached to them that personally I'm, you know, I'm kind of revolted by. Mm. But, but the Crays certainly were able to kind of capitalize on their twinship and to kind of incorporate it into their highly violent persona. There's also a story in the book about a pair of Swedish sisters. It wasn't actually that long ago, but I didn't know anything about no. this, who were caught on a British motorway. And they charged out into the traffic, really seriously injuring themselves. Yeah. And then when, when one was in hospital, critically injured, the other murdered somebody and then jumped from a bridge and broke both her legs. And, and in their defence, the barrister argued that they were uh, experiencing a form of shared psychosis. So that was uh, argued and, and used as a, as, a, as a way to diminish responsibility for one of the twins. Arguably, they were, had diminished responsibility because they were twins. William Viney um, talking about his book, Twin Kind. Uh, and we are focusing on some of the more negative aspects of twins there right at the end of the conversation. But there was lots of good stuff in there too. Uh, and I don't personally know any twins, I've just realised. Well, my aunt is a twin. Yes. So she's married to my uncle. So there's no, it's not in my... Oh, it's not a blood relative. A blood relative. No. Uh, and she came to live in this country. Uh, she's French but her twins stayed living in France. But the older they've got, the more they want to be together, actually, on the same kind of land mass. And they, uh, I think, actually at the moment, off on holiday together. And I still find it, speaking of, so I've known my aunt all of my life, mm. and I still find it uh, strange when I see her twin. Because it's, they are so alike. Yes, they are identical. Um, but they have, do you know what, they have such a lovely bond, Jane. Really, really, really lovely bond. Well, I rather admired William's honesty. He said that, yes, he, he and his brother are very close, but they've never had any of those feelings. No, no, none they of just haven't. None of those kind of ley line no. moments of buying the same thing at the same time and mm. what have you. But it's a lovely relationship to witness if it's working. It's really, I mean, it's just the, the ultimate, it's just peak sibling, isn't it? It's peak love, peak sibling love. Mm. So, uh, Dolly Alston said that we were turning into twins yesterday, didn't she, when she came in to talk about her novel. We'll air that interview next yeah. week. She also very kindly said, I look nothing like Kevin Keegan, so I'm holding that close to my bosom. <laughs> just... Have we done this email from Kathleen about psychics? <laughs> oh, I've got this, well, you, you go for it, because I've got it here as well. It's, it's just superb, okay. Kathleen. Well, we've got to get a wiggle on, because yeah. I'm doing good works and Fee's got to go and watch Shetland. <laughs> So, and I've got it recorded, put it on series link. Um, uh, Kathleen says, uh, I haven't, I have not only visited a psychic, I was for a time a fairly close friend of a practicing psychic. She could be chillingly accurate at times, but as a person with a scientific background, I began to take note of the accuracy rate and some things she predicted were just wrong. At the beginning of lockdown, for example, she told me it would all be over in two weeks and I wasn't to worry. On the other hand, when I was really panicking about my son's travel visa coming through, he was about to go to university in England, she told me confidently it would arrive the following Friday, <laughs> even though the visa office had said up to four weeks. 
Sure enough, late in the day on Friday, it arrived, just in time for him to get to his first week of classes. If you were not keeping track, you'd believe she was always correct, but I'd put it at about 50-50. I just can't be sure, says Kathleen. OK, well, that is... 50 is not a bad strike rate, but the weirdness of the accuracy about the visa... I know, but do you know what, Kathleen? I would much rather that your son's visa hadn't come through on the Friday uh, and that your psychic friend had been right about the pandemic only lasting two weeks. So if you could just maybe swings and roundabouts there yeah. next time you go for a reading, that would be good. Well, no, do ask her about the election, because I think if I went down the bookies now, I'd probably get reasonable odds on something the majority or something like that just have a word with her uh, we don't know this psychic's name do we no, no. Uh, hang on hang on yes hang is it on. coming through is it coming through is it coming through uh, wait no no wait wait i'm going to say jean <laughs> well i'm guessing mary uh because kathleen is a kathleen so she must know a mary let's see who's right you know what you have to do jane and fee at times.radio kathleen thank you very much all right kev have a lovely evening <laughs> You know, I interviewed Kevin Keegan once. Did you? And I asked him about that perm. And he said, uh, he said, oh, it was absolutely terrible. Uh, whenever I walked past a window or a mirror, I felt like I was looking at myself through beveled glass. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he had a sense of humour about it anyway. He had a massive sense of humour about it. That's I thought it was rather sexy, actually. It just reminded me that his wife is called Jean. And you just said Jean. Spooky. Oh, Halloween is not over here. More's the bloody pity. Right, good evening. Good luck tonight, darling. <laughs> We're bringing the shutters down on another episode of the internationally acclaimed podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. But don't forget that you can get another two hours of us every Monday to Thursday afternoon here on Times Radio. We start at 3pm and you can listen for free on your smart speaker. Just shout play Times Radio at it. Uh, you can also get us on DAB Radio in the car or on the Times Radio app whilst you're out and about being extremely busy. And you can follow all our tosh behind the mic and elsewhere on our Instagram account. Just go onto Insta and search for Jane and Fee and give us a follow. So in other words, we're everywhere, aren't we, Jane? Pretty much. Everywhere. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com